hi everybody. My name is Sabrina. I'm a compulsive overeater and bulimic. And I know Maureen is not here today, but she asked me to speak and I'm really grateful to be here um, to hopefully carry the message. And um, Anne, welcome. I know you said this is your third or so meeting and um, fourth. Fourth, okay, <laughs> really happy that you're here. And I just wanna say, if I don't say anything that resonates for you, please um, keep going, coming back. This is just my own experience that I get to share. Um, so I, uh, I wanna show my pictures first because otherwise I'll forget. And I'm sorry, I don't have digital versions, but I will do my best to hold these up so you can see. Um, this is a good example of what it used to be like, uh, particularly this one is always very sobering for me. Um, and um, those were taken, my before pictures, I, I came in to Overeaters Anonymous um, really for the first time in 2008, and I did not get it at all. I was not having it. I had a lot more eating and purging and life destruction to do. Um, and, you know, I always say that I just don't have a memory in life where food was not the center point of everything or my body obsession was not the center point of, of everything. Um, I, I think I was born this way as a compulsive overeater, just always, um, I've heard someone share, like they knew that their slice wasn't enough before it was even cut. And that really, really resonates for me that, you know, there's just not enough ever. And, and I feel that way kind of about everything in life, but particularly with food, there was never enough food. And I grew up in a, um, you know, typical, normal, dysfunctional family, um, but nothing crazy. I, you know, there were no circumstances beyond just, you know, like I said, I think being born this way that, that made me this way. And um, my mom is also one of us. And so I just got messaging really, really early that the way my body looked was what was important. And um, my mom was I think really like an orthorexic, so obsessed with healthy food. And so I was restricted very, very young. And um, my mom used a lot of trickery and would replace foods that we thought we were having with homemade foods that she made. And so I just, you know, very, very early on had a lot of like, this is good. This is bad. Don't eat this, have this. Um, and I sort of revolted against that. And I had this, you know, gnawing feeling inside of me that I had to have those things despite being told um, that I couldn't or I shouldn't. And I was not overweight as a, as a child, but I thought that I was. And I think my mom thought that I was. And I was put on my first diet at the age of nine. And that began my dieting career. But I always share, I was a terrible dieter. I still am a terrible dieter. I was always dieting, but always overweight, always. I never had the success of like, I hear a lot of people share, you know, gaining and losing hundreds of pounds in their life. That was just not my experience. I was always overweight. Um, but I didn't really identify my weight as, as an issue or, you know, where I, where I was like really overweight until high school. 
And um, that was the only time that I had a successful a successful diet. And that was because my mom took me to someone who put me on drugs like speed, basically. And they were in the form of, you know, herbal medications, but they were not herbal. And um, I took those medic those drugs, and I lost a bunch of weight. And then I started to get a lot of attention from boys as a as a teenager. And that really scared me. And I put the weight back on very, very quickly. And then I went off to college and um, I also smoked a lot of marijuana in college. And those two things together, marijuana and, and food are sort of a lethal combination. And I gained a lot of weight in college. And every summer I would come home from college and my mom would take me to the you know, commercial diet place and, okay, let's get that weight off. And maybe I'd lose you know, 10 to 20 pounds in the summer, but I'd go back to college and I'd gain another 30. And so I was just on a constant, um, you know, chucking up. And by the time I graduated from college, I was well over 200 pounds. I think I was probably 220 my senior year of college. And, um, and so I, I went away to school. And when I went, when I went away to school, it was also like a freedom because I was not around my mom restricting me. So then it was just like eating everything I could get my hands on for four years. Um, so I, I came back, I live in Los Angeles and I came back to Los Angeles after college. And, um, in 2007, I weighed 250 pounds and I decided to have weight loss surgery. So I had lap band surgery in 2007 weighing 250 pounds. And I came in to Overeaters Anonymous for the second time, time that I've been here in 2014. And I weighed 280 plus pounds. So for me, that's really good evidence that um, diets and weight loss surgeries are not for someone like me, that I, that, that, that this is not a diet, this cannot be solved with a diet or, you know, adjusting my anatomy and, um, and, you know, outside of the food. So I said, I came in weighing 280 pounds. I was also purging, um, about 10 times a day. And, um, you know, I, I would purge into water bottles in my car, into bags. I would drive from 7-Eleven to the supermarket back to 7-Eleven. I mean, it was like literally a full-time job to get food, eat it, dispose of it. That was my whole, I don't even know how I did anything else. I got a master's degree during that time. And I honestly don't know how that happened um, because my whole existence was about getting food, getting rid of it you know, either using people to get food or get away from me so that I can have alone time with my food. And um, so uh, I, I also want to talk about what my life looked like outside of the weight, which is that I like I said, I, I obtained a master's degree and, and I do want to say, I'm, I think I'm really good at what I do. <laughs> so something worked out in, in my favor, but, um, but it was all kind of a haze. And, um, you know, I was living well beyond my means. I spent way more money on, on things. I was, you know, a compulsive shopper. 
Um, I couldn't pay for my rent. My parents were always covering me. Um, I was always like, you know, borrowing from whatever Paul to pay, whatever that saying is, you know, like I just was never, um, financially stable, independent. And, um, and I also, sorry, Rick, was that 10? No. Okay. No, sorry. I thought you okay. two more minutes till 10. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, I also, uh, so, so yeah, so I, I also lived, you know, I always wanted to like live extravagantly. So I would rent apartments that were too expensive that I couldn't afford and just, you know, anticipate that someone was going to help me and save me, whether it was my parents or, you know, my brother or whatever. Um, I just sort of like lived by my own set of rules. I, I could not pay my bills. Like I had stacks and stacks and stacks of mail that I did not open. Um, I had a hard time doing laundry, taking a shower, washing my dishes, um, making my bed. I always share this, that I used to like do laundry. It would sit on my bed. I would have no sheets on my bed. And every night I would be like, okay, tonight's the night I'm going to fold the laundry. And then I just lay down on the bed and like with me and my two dogs in the bed with out sheets and, you know, this, this was my life. And, um, you know, it was very, very, very dishonest. So dishonest that as it says in, in the big book, like I didn't know what was real and what wasn't real because I just lied all the time. Um, I had, you know, really inappropriate relationships. Thank you, Rick. 10 minutes, had, yeah. Thanks so much. I had really inappropriate relationships um, with men. I, I just didn't feel like rules ever applied to me. And, um, and I didn't follow the rules. I didn't follow directions. I just did what I wanted when I wanted. And, you know, I tried to, to stay in line, but, um, but I didn't, you know, I just, I always felt like I was sort of above the law. And so um, that's, that's what, you know, in a nutshell, what it was, what it was like. Um, and what brought me back to Overeaters Anonymous in 2014, weighing 280 pounds, was at the time not my weight. Um, not that I was happy with my weight by any means, but I didn't think that I could ever lose weight. I had never experienced weight loss, even with a lap band in my body. So um, I had an ex-boyfriend who was uh, a drug addict alcoholic, and he got sober and made amends to me. And during the lunch that we were ha you know, having together for him to make the amends, I think I got up maybe three or four times to go purge. And you know, he suggested that I go to Overeaters Anonymous. And I thought that that was the most ridiculous thing that anybody could ever suggest to me because I, of course, had not found the right diet, the right combination of purging and eating. And, um, and I left there going like, this guy's nuts. And he, he said some things to me, like you, he said, you suffer from a spiritual malady. And he might as well have been speaking Portuguese to me. Like, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't care to know what that meant. Um, and I, but I left. And I think within a few days, somehow I ended up at an Overeaters Anonymous meeting. So for me, I can say like, that was a power greater than me working in my life. So I, I came to my first for the second time uh, Overeaters Anonymous meeting in 2014. And um, 
I really came not thinking that I could ever have be at a healthy body weight or that I could ever have, you know, a life different than the life that I had that wasn't just complete obsession all the time with food. But I started to hear people and see people who shared what they did with food. They ate out of the garbage cans. They, you know, just the, the sort of secrets that I was like, oh my God, who's been in my house? Who knows what I've been doing? That all of you had done the very same thing. And um, I started working with a sponsor and that sponsor um, who is a dear friend of mine who is here today, today is a dear friend. Um, we, I worked with her for many years and she took me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, that's when things started to change for me. Um, I had an awakening uh, and I started to have an experience um, with the steps and you know the principles of the program, first one being honesty and what that meant. And, um, and so I went through this, as it describes in the big book, this, this sort of psychic change. Um, so I want to share a little bit about what's currently happening because it relates, I think, to my, to my whole story. So I celebrated in August, uh, last, this last August, I had celebrated six years of abstinence and, um, I had a baby. So, my life has changed drastically from sleeping on a bed with no sheets and my dogs to now having, of course, a husband and a baby. My baby does not sleep in my bed, but my husband does. Um, so I, I will talk more about how my life has changed, but, um, but I, um, oh my gosh, I lost my train of thought. So, so as I, as I, began to have this, um, oh, I, I know what I wanted to say. I wanted to talk about what's happened now. So I celebrated the six years of abstinence. I had a baby and I sort of started to veer off after having my son, who's now almost 11 months, very shortly after giving birth. Um, I started not weighing and measuring my food. I started just kind of like looking for things in the cabinet that were quote unquote abstinent. And um, during the pandemic, I, I started to go to meetings that I had not normally gone to. And I started to hear people talk about the freedom and I could see the freedom that they had that this, you know, the sponsor that I worked with for many years, like she absolutely had it. I didn't. And, um, and I started to see a lot of people that had this freedom. And I realized that I was not entirely abstinent. So I restarted my abstinence about six plus months ago. And um, I wanna share this because I never consumed flour. I never consumed sugar, recreational sugar, and I never binged or purged, which was, the which was what my abstinence was for those six years, six plus years that I, I really thought I was abstinent. And um, what, I came to understand and really experience was that I was still chasing an effect from food. So every time I ate, I wanted it to be a party and I wanted it to be exciting and fun. And I was the queen of lookalikes, the queen of like, take an egg, take some oatmeal and make a muffin. 
um, take a banana, take some eggs, make a pancake. Like that was what I did. Everything had to be, you know, I had to morph abstinent foods into non-abstinence, uh, non-abstinent foods, cauliflower, make it a pizza. Like everything in my life was like that. And I was constantly chasing, you know, I, I talk about like social media is like a place for me where it's like food pornography, where I could just spend hours like scrolling lookalike foods, you know, and it's like my whole day is gone. And that's what I was doing. Like baby, where's my baby? Who cares? I'm like looking at, you know, these raw vegan balls that are made of cacao, whatever, like it doesn't matter. But like that, that's what I was doing. Um, so so I realized that although, you know, this idea of like technical abstinence, what does that even mean? I'm not sober. And not, not only am I not sober, emotionally, I am not sober and present in my life as it is. I was having a very hard time managing and dealing with what was in my life, which were all beautiful, amazing things. So, um, so I decided that I, I, I needed to restart my absence and, and that meant for me making a list and being really honest about foods that I tried for so many years to manage and control behaviors. I tried for so many years to manage and control that I could not manage and control. And, you know, I don't want to take away from the spiritual change that happened to me in those six years, because my life did change and I did develop a relationship with a power, but at some point I stopped looking for that power and I stopped trying to access that power and I started to become resentful at the power and you're not doing for me. And this isn't, you know, kind of like old thinking of like Sabrina is the center of the universe and the world revolves around Sabrina. And, and what has happened is this awakening of well, I'm either using food or I have God. I cannot have both. I can't use food like this much and have God in my life. And that's what I was doing. I maybe wasn't, you know, eating sheet cakes, but I was still using food as a way to, to numb and manage and control things in my life. And so today I am entirely abstinent. And um, that was, you know, the first seven to nine days of being entirely abstinent after thinking I had been abstinent for six years, I was like a, a mess. I mean, I was truly a newcomer. I was going through withdrawal, which I had never, you know, I didn't think was possible because I'm like, well, I've never eaten sugar, but I went through withdrawal and, um, and you know, I believed that if I ate the way that I eat today, that my life would just be over, that my husband would divorce me, that nobody would want to be my friend. I mean, these are the things that I genuinely believe that I couldn't live in the world and exist in the world if I ate in this sort of, you know, boring way. And um, what has been the experience for me is, is the exact opposite, that I'm able to like actually be in life in a different way and, um, and have a different, a different experience. So, you know, through those six years, changes that happened, um, I, I first started to get honest, you know, first with myself, then with another person. 
And when I get honest with myself, I'm also getting honest with God. And, um, and so that was a big change, like telling the truth, um, a big change for me in life. And it really is today, like, that has to be the root of everything, to be honest, even if it's like this person, this company, you know, didn't charge me for this thing, like, or I, you know, something like that. Um, because that's the like, corroding thread for me that, um, that will take me down. So um, that's the foundation of my life. I, um, I shared like I, I'm married to uh, another human. Not, you got nine minutes left. Awesome. Thanks. Um, I, I'm married to a person who's also in recovery. Uh, he's sober and abstinent in some other programs. And this is the foundation of our life together. And um, it's how I think we know how to communicate with each other. It's how we know how to, you know, co-parent and raise a child together. And, and I have a kid, which, um, you know, for a long time, I didn't think was going to happen. I went through a lot of uh, infertility and miscarriages. And, you know, my son is a miracle, quite frankly. And, um, and I have a life today, like in relationships with people, that's beyond anything I could imagine, because I'm really like present and, and alive in, in those relationships. Um, and I want to share, I'm getting a little emotional, but um, in my first 30 days of, of restarting my absence, my father passed away. And, um, you know, the gift that I got from this program is that I had a fellowship to hold me up and walk me through such a painful um, experience but I also got to be present. I got to be sitting, I sat next to my dad. I held his hands as he took his last breath. I was there for my mom. I was there for my brothers. I showed up and I didn't run. And like, I'm a runner, like things get tough. I'm like upstairs packing my bags. I want I want out. Like, I'm just, I want to bolt from everything. And I didn't run from, you know, what I think in my mind would have been like a, a quite terrifying experience. So, um, you know, I've been through really beautiful things in my life, like getting married and having a baby to really scary, sad things like losing a parent and, um, you know, the, the pandemic, like all of these things that um, are things that ultimately I think I would need food more to get through. And so the way that this has happened, the way that this is possible, the way that I was able to show up with, for my family when my dad was dying is not because I'm special and it's not be, you know, I'm just like a, a run of the mill, like every description in the big book, every description in the OA and AA 12 and 12, like that's me. I'm just a run of the mill food addict. But I had a willingness to be honest about what was um, what what foods were alcoholic and what foods actually, as it talks about in the in the doctor's opinion, trigger a phenomenon of craving. So when I eat those foods, the phenomenon of craving happens in my body, and then I have an obsession of the mind 
and then I can't stop. And so I am powerless. I have no control. If I am consuming that food or engaging in those food behaviors, I can't stop despite the desperate desire to stop. You know, every morning I'd wake up um, and I'd be like, I'm not doing this today. I'm not going in that cabinet. I'm not having X food. And you know what? By lunchtime, I was eating that food because I'm powerless. So I had to first put those foods down. I had to stop consuming them. I had to stop triggering that phenomenon of craving. So I don't eat sugar in any form, which is new for me. I used to eat things like ketchup and salad dressings and think like, I'm fine. I don't want to overeat those foods. Well, I didn't want to overeat those foods, but I think perhaps those eating those things then made me want to overeat or consume more sweetness later on. Um, and I have a, a very long, long list of other alcoholic foods and food behaviors that I don't consume. And, um, and so now I really need God because I don't have food. So this was sort of the missing piece for me that I never really needed God in this desperate way because I always had a little bit of food. So now I need that power. And the way that I access that power is through working the, the next three steps um, and continuing to work the steps. So that first step is like admitting powerlessness, putting the food down. Then I, you know, I come to believe and, and, um, and I really did, like I had a power in my life before this, you know, six months ago, but to really rely on it, I, I was not doing. And now I really rely on that power. And, um, and I, I'm currently in my ninth step again, and I've done, this is, I think my third time going through the steps and I am the most uncomfortable in this ninth step than any other time I have worked the steps. Like, I feel like the first time I went through the steps, I didn't necessarily have a lot of the things that showed up on this step on my radar because I couldn't access it, right? So like, this is just a constant excavation. It doesn't mean that I didn't do a thorough job the first time, but like, this is just more insight as to why I keep going, why I keep digging, I keep excavating, I keep discarding because there's always something there. I'm a human being, right? So um, so I'm really working through like, just I'm petrified by some of the amends, like paralyzed almost quite frankly. Um, but I just am rooting myself in, in the faith that I'm going to be okay. And also taking the action despite how I feel, because my feelings do not dictate what I do. If my feelings dictated what I do, like I would have um, killed my husband this morning. I would have, you know, ripped my dog's face off for barking at the squirrel. I mean, like, these are the things, these are the feelings and the thoughts that I have and they can't dictate my actions. Um, and like, I would have killed my husband because the baby gate was not in the right, you know, when something was wrong with the baby gate and suddenly it's his fault. It's like, this is the sickness that lies within my mind that the big book talks about. And so I don't have a reliable um, resource. I'm not a reliable resource for my life that I know. So if I'm not a reliable resource, then God has to be the reliable resource. And I hear God through fellows. I hear God through prayer and meditation, through writing, 
Um, and trusting that like whatever is in front of me and is happening is what is supposed to happen instead of trying to have God's will align with my will. I am trying to align myself with God's will, even if I don't like it. And quite frankly, a lot of the time I don't like it. And that's just life on life's terms. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I just can't speak enough to like, you know, if you don't have a sponsor to get one, you can't work the steps thoroughly by yourself, um, get a sponsor and get into the steps as they're outlined in the big book, because that is where the freedom and the beauty is. So today I am free completely from the obsession of food. I am not free from the obsession of body and wanting my body to look different but that doesn't change anything that happens on my plate. Um, so that's the honest truth. I'm still working towards a healthy body weight back to my pre-pregnancy weight and still working towards, um, towards a healthy body weight, which I do with the help of a dietitian. So I don't make decisions about my food. I hired somebody like, I think I'm a dietitian. I think I could like tell everybody on here what to eat and how to eat um, along with myself, but I'm not one. So um, I, I pay somebody to help me who's educated and can do it for me. And I follow her food plan, even if I think it's stupid, even if I think it's wrong, even if I, you know, whatever it is, I follow it. And, um, and I work the steps like my life depends on it because it legitimately does one minute. Thank you, Rick. Um, my life literally does depend on it. And, um, and I try to carry the message. I just started working with a sponsee. Um, you know, I let all of my sponsees go when I restarted my abstinence and I had been feeling like, oh, this is so nice to not have sponsees. And, um, and now I'm working with someone and it's been the most tremendous enhancement to my recovery and such a gift. And I am like beyond grateful. I truly have a life beyond my wildest dreams. Even if the circumstances um, are not necessarily that, my perspective is the life beyond my wildest dreams. And um, I owe that to Overeaters Anonymous. Thanks. Thank you, Sabrina. It is now time for question and answer. So a question and answer period until 10.55 a.m. So now the floor is open. Hi, I have a question. Yeah, your uh, sheet and uh, clothes situation uh, hit home very uh, close. And uh, I'm wondering uh, what you did about that. Or just your, yeah, what you do about that. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I cannot discipline myself. I can't will myself into being different, just like I can't will myself to stop eating. Um, <clears throat> but I can take actions um, and ask, like I can pray and ask for help. Um, and I can also ask fellows for help. So um for that particular thing and like the dishes in my sink and the, the opening of mail, um, I literally had fellows come to my house and help me. I had fellows come and help me hang up my clothes, open my mail, 
Um, I remember like sitting on the phone with my sponsor at the time with my dishes and she would say like, just wash one dish and I'd wash a dish. And then I, she'd say, okay, wash another one. And I'd wash another one. And that was literally what I did. And, um, and I can't speak enough to like the, the importance of routine for me. Like I thrive on routine. I didn't have routine as a child. My parents were hippies and like, there was just like a free for all. And I thrive today on routine. And so I wake up in the morning and I make my bed. And, um, you know, these are things that I do like on a daily basis, like brushing my teeth. um, Because if I don't, I know where I'm headed. So it's like I can so easily try to talk myself out of like why it's not important. Like, who cares? Making the bed. I'm just going to get in it later. Like, well, you know, whatever it is. Um, But those little actions help me. So, um, you know, for me, it was like calling a fellow, even if it was just like, you know, I don't know if you're having people over, but like FaceTiming while someone sits with you. And like, you know, I always offer if you're having a hard time opening your mail, doing your laundry, washing your dishes, like call me, I will sit on the phone with you. And you can fold your laundry with me. And, and, you know, it's so um, it's esteem building to do those things. And um, I just also want to share, you know, early in my recovery, I used to have so much crap in my car. Like it looked like I lived out of my car and my car got broken into at my boyfriend, now husband's house and tons of stuff got stolen. And at the time my sponsor said to me that it like, you know, laid down the law, that is it. Never again, nothing in your car. And you know what? I don't leave anything in my car to this day. All these years later, my car is clean. So it's like, sometimes you have to learn the hard way, you know, sometimes it takes boulders, like losing really important, valuable things to you to learn. Um, I hope that's not what it is, but that's, yeah, my experience. Hope that helps. Thank you. Natalie. Hi, Sabrina. Thanks so much for your share. And uh, first of all, I can really relate to everything, including the restarting your abstinence and getting entirely abstinent, but also especially the substitute food. (laughs) Let me try to find the the substitute. So uh, that is really great and thank you. My question for you is, do you feel like you could have been entirely abstinent before you understood that you weren't? So my experience has been that I don't think I would have known I wasn't. And I'm wondering if that was your experience as well. So just if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I, um, I've done a book study with someone named Herb Kay. I don't know if any of you know him, he's an AA, but he, he does a book study and, um, he always talks about like, um, being asleep, but thinking you're awake. And, um, I think that was what it was like, I, I wasn't awake. And, you know, this is a spiritual journey, right? I don't just like wake up, at least for me, I didn't wake up in this having a spiritual experience and be, um, you know, like the highest of all beings because I'm human. So it's a, it's a journey and I'm sure that things will continue to show themselves and evolve. And so I think that like I was where I was. And I don't think I knew, you know, I mean, I really was doing at the time the best that I could within the work that I was doing. 
Um, and that was just what was happening. So I don't look back and go like, oh, you didn't do it right or you weren't doing it. Um, you weren't entirely absent, but I, I don't think that I, I knew that. I just didn't. I didn't know until I knew, you know? So I was awake, I was asleep until I was awake. And now I am awake. And once you awaken, it's very hard to go back to sleep. So now I know, and now there's no going back to sleep. I don't know if that answers your question, but so. I have one more, if that's all right. <laughs> um, could you talk a little bit about your, do you do uh, the morning in the evening routine with step 11 and step 10, you know, the questions from the big book and stuff like that? Yes. Or what is so, your- So um, usually um, my baby is my alarm clock, quite frankly. So I don't currently have uh, the, the morning routine of like 30 minutes of alone time. Um, in the morning, um, usually my baby is my alarm clock. Every once in a while, I'll wake up before him. And um, what happens in that time when I wake up before him is, you know, the serenity prayer, praying for God to, you know, help me align my will with God's will for that day. How can I be of maximum service to other people? And like, that's happening while I'm taking my mouth guard out and peeing, you know, like I don't have candles lit on my knees even, um, and, and, it, and that's enough, like that works today. Um, and then I, uh, tried to, to get on a meeting is first thing in the morning. Um, even if it's just listening, um, I try to get on a meeting. I do go to a meeting every single day, whether it's listening or attending a zoom meeting. Um, and then, uh, so for me, what's different now is that, um, so I'm, I'm only on my ninth step, so I can't speak too much on 10, 11 and 12, but what I can say is that, um, I treat like when I have a resentment or a fear, which I have all the time, um, I have to treat those immediately, immediately, because if I don't treat it immediately, it becomes an enormous, huge scab. So what I do is um, go through and, and find my part, you know, basically. Um, there's an app that I use that I'm sure a lot of people use. If you want to know what it is, message me later because it's probably not OA approved. Um, but it ha it's, has um, all the questions from the big book. And I do like a spot check inventory, which is, you know, a 10th step. Um, and then, you know, I haven't been currently doing anything when I retire at night besides thanking God for an abstinent day. And um, I, I will, I'm sure, very, very soon get to an 11th step where I'm, you know, but, but I would say through the 10th step, I am constantly looking at myself because I am, I am the root of the resentment and I am the root of the fear. I have a question. Yes, Susan. Hi, Susan, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. My question is, so whenever we talk about entire abstinence, and I could be wrong, but a lot of people get very jiggy and it's very humbling what you did and it takes courage. And I don't recall if you said it this morning because, you know, we can all easily go on being abstinent, you know, and it just says this and it just says that. And then you read the doctor's opinion, and you realize where you are seeking an effect and looking for a message of depth and weight. 
was there an awakening or an experience like a moment where you just really just couldn't fake it anymore where you just couldn't do it it's a really good question um i think what happened was i was on a meeting and i heard somebody share and she was taking a candle for a year after restarting her time for sort of the exact same thing and it was literally like i felt like i had just been punched in the gut and she had talked about eating a particular food like skinny pop popcorn or something like that that i was like you know i have gotten into the ring in the, those six years i was abstinent about seven thousand times with popcorn and um and i lost every time but i kept going back and so it felt like i had been punched in the gut and i picked up the phone and um i called someone who is now my sponsor and i just was honest with her about what had happened and i called that woman who shared and i said you told my story and she sort of you know told and that and then i started making phone calls and i started calling people who were not co-signing on um anything that i was trying to dish out that were like yeah it sounds like you're not sober it sounds like you have a restart and and um and i just i felt like i was having in a lot of ways at that time a sort of white light experience which i had never had before um that it was impossible for me to to go on any more pretending in that moment and i really also think i knew what was at stake which was my husband my baby my family um i had just had too much in my life you know that I wasn't willing to, to, to give it. And I knew that I was also like just a couple days away from cookies, you know, I wasn't eating them yet, but I was just a couple days away. And then I'm just a couple days away from 300 pounds. And then I'm just a couple days away from 600 pounds and you needing a crane to take the roof off of my house to get me out. Like, I believe I am that kind of compulsive eater. So yeah, Shannon. Hi Sabrina, thank you so much for your share. Really inspiring Shannon compulsive eater bulimic. Um, just wondering how you use program to help with your relationship with your husband and, um, you know, with your child as well. Thank you. That's a really good question. So as I said, my husband is in recovery. So um, I think that in a lot of ways that probably helps because he is also like, we are side by side doing um, work on ourselves. And so um, he is a person that can you know, admit when he was wrong, make amends promptly, um, hear me when I come to him about something. But how I use it um, first is usually, correct, one minute. Okay, how I use it um, is usually, um, for me, it's always like resentment. That's my number one feeling that happens and like how I've been wronged um, in, my, in my relationship somehow. And so for me, the spot check inventories are, uh, life-changing because what happens when I do a spot check inventory is, is it literally clears that resentment. I have to look at myself and, um, and then suddenly, um, my husband, I, I view my husband the same way I did when I started dating him, you know, with the goo gooey eyes, like I still have that feeling for him. I've been with him for 
you know, almost seven years. And, um, and I still look at him that way, but like not every day. And sometimes I have to pick up the phone and like complain and get it out, you know, make an outreach call and just kind of diarrhea everything out. But then I can't stop there. I've got to keep going. I've got to look at myself. I have to look at my part. I have to look at where I was dishonest, where I was, you know, selfish, all of those things, because that is the root of, of the issue. I can't change him. I only can change myself, but I think it does help to also have someone who's looking at where he was selfish and where he was dishonest. Um, I didn't maybe get to answer the part about the baby, but, um, it, parenthood is the hardest job I've ever had in my life. Like by far the hardest job ever. I wanted it for so long and then it happened and I'm like, Oh my God, this is so hard. And um, I would say same thing applies. Like, thank you, God. I'm, you know, God made me a mom. And so I am, I am, I am a mother and God wants me to be this way. And this is my job. And, um, and I, you know, also just really quickly write down ideals for like how I want to be in the relationship, relationship ideals and mother mothering, parenting ideals. And I, I have it on a note on my phone and on really hard days, I look at those. See you, Rick. Thank you. I look at those and um, I try to try to ask God to help me align with those ideals. Okay. I think that's it. It is now time to close the meeting. Thanks to our speaker and to those who gave service. We welcome back anyone who wishes to attend, no matter where they are in the recovery process. Uh, I am going to read the promises. So the promises. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being, being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. After a moment of silent meditation, would you please join me in the serenity prayer? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, our courage to change the things I can, wisdom to know the difference, I will not mind.